Well, Paul asked uh, me and the, the other preachers who will be filling in while he's gone to preach on the Messiah in the Old Testament. And uh, here, Genesis 3.15 is the very first mention of the character that we would come to know as the Messiah. And interestingly enough, this very first appearance of the man that we know as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes in the curse of the serpent. The very first time Jesus is uh, described, he is described as the foe of Satan, the one who will crush evil. We all know the phrase, the person, the Antichrist. Well, Christ's first appearance is as the anti-serpent. And so to understand who Christ is in this passage, what we have to do is look at the serpent. And by looking at the serpent, to see the consequences, the destruction that he has brought into this world. It's only by reminding ourselves the misery that the serpent has brought upon us by enticing us to sin can we then fully appreciate Christ and his victory over evil and over the serpent. Often our relationship to Christ is somewhat like our relationship to water. We're ambivalent to both of them. Sometimes it's a chore to drink water. We have to remind ourselves, yeah, I should have another glass right now. And at dinner we say, ah, I won't have a Coke, I'll just have a glass of water. But then other times, when it's hot out, when we've been exercising, there's really no greater passion than we, ha than we have for water. Everything else fades away. The only thing that matters is having that drink. And when you have that drink, it's one of the greatest sensations that we can feel as humans. That satisfaction, that relief. And sadly, it's the same thing with Christ, right? We can be apathetic towards Him, become a chore to look at Him, to consider Him, to obey Him. We think, yeah, I really want to do this other thing right now, but I really should look at Christ. It's what He would want me to do. It's what I have to do. But when we feel the depths of woe, when we feel the guilt, when we feel our sin, when we are suffering and everything is falling apart, and there's nothing that we want more than Christ, and we see His sweetness we see that He's all we have ever had. And that's the truth. Whether we feel it or not, we always need Christ more than anything else. And He's the only thing that will satisfy us. And what we have to do, though, in order to rouse ourselves from our apathy is to remind ourselves just what a terrible state we actually are in. What a sorry life this is. That this is somewhat a hell on earth. And yes, it might sound morbid or bleak, but again, that's the great news. It's actually by looking at that that leads to our greatest happiness because then we see that, yes, our Lord and Savior, we deserved all of this suffering, but He saved us and He took it upon Himself. So what we'll do this morning is first look at the, the consequences, the destruction that the serpent has brought upon this world by tempting us to sin and by looking at those depths of our misery we will then fully appreciate the promise of hope that comes in verse 15. So to first, though, turn our attention to the background of chapter 2. This section that we're looking at, it goes from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4 uh, with Cain and Abel. And the story, it's all about the fall of man. It's all about our sin. But Moses sets the stage by first describing the beautiful harmony that Adam and Eve had at the beginning in the Garden of Eden in creation. 
And verse 25, it's the perfect summary of that marital bliss they enjoyed. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were perfectly vulnerable with one another, and yet they were free in that. They had perfect trust in one another. They had perfect intimacy. And yet very quickly though, Moses rings an ominous note. The word there for naked in verse 25 sounds very similar to the word in chapter 3, verse 1, for crafty. It's a pun. And the idea that Moses is saying is the vulnerability that Adam and Eve had is going to be victim to the craftiness of the serpent. And that is the one direct characterization that we're giving of the serpent, is that he's crafty. Crafty It's neither a good word nor a bad word. It just means clever. It can be used for good, often in Proverbs, or in Job, it's used of ill. And obviously, it's used for ill purposes here by the serpent. But that's all we're told, that he's clever. More than any of the other beasts, he's clever. And then something very shocking happens uh, in the rest of verse 1. The serpent talks. This is not a normal thing in, in human life, obviously, nor is it a normal thing in the Bible. There's only one other time when an animal talks in the Bible, and there it's explained. We're told why Balaam, was the, the donkey, was talking. Here, though, there's, there's no explanation. It's just all of a sudden, a talking serpent. And see what happens, you know, it, it, it's for good reason. We, we love the Bible, we respect the Bible, we don't ever want to condescend to Moses or any of the biblical authors. But what happens when we do that sometimes is the thing that the biblical author meant to be shocking, surprising, strange, in our effort to not ever impugn those things onto Moses, we just assume that the weird stuff is entirely normal. So we see a talking snake and we go, oh yeah, yeah, sure, that makes sense, Moses. Is there any explanation? No, oh, okay, yeah, no, that, that makes sense, continue on. But that's not what Moses intended. He knew it's weird that a snake talks and it's supposed to be that way. The impression that we're supposed to get is one of intimidation, mystery, fear. Basically the same feeling that Eve would have. She's standing there and she sees a serpent approach and all of a sudden a serpent starts talking to her. She's going to be scared. She's going to be shocked. She's going to wonder, how is the serpent talking to me? And just because she doesn't say, how do you talk? That doesn't mean that she wasn't surprised. And the very reason Moses doesn't give any background of this saying that this is actually Satan is because he wants us to have the same fear, intimidation, and mystery that Eve experienced. Indeed, sometimes, uh, especially secular people, they'll say, nope, it's not Satan, it's just a serpent. How do we know it's not just a serpent? Well, Revelation says the ancient serpent is Satan, so that's the cheat code. But by looking at it, we can also figure it out. Again, rather clearly, how do we know it's not just a serpent? Because serpents don't talk. This is a talking serpent. It must not be a normal serpent. It must have some supernatural mind behind it. And then is this a good mind or an evil mind? Well, that's very clear. It's an evil mind. Okay, so we know this serpent has some supernatural evil mind behind it. And then we'll see in verse 15 that he's going to be the progenitor of all evil people. Okay, that sounds like Satan. So we know that. And the first thing that we see, the first destructive thing that Satan the serpent brings into the world and which we still experience to this day is doubt. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And then when Eve responds, he just the serpent flat out impugns God's motives. He tells Eve, no, God is not good. He lied to you. You will not surely die. No, see, the thing is, God's really a malevolent tyrant in the sky who has tricked you. And you have been so gullible in believing him. He doesn't want your good. No, rather, the reason he said that you shouldn't eat of it is because he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Before that happened, Adam and Eve had perfect peace of mind in the realm of certainty. They always knew what the truth is. They always knew what they ought to do. Their mind was never lost in confusion, wondering why they were there or what they, they should do. They had perfect certainty, trusting God's every word. And in that, it was a carefree life. But ever since this first seed of doubt, we have all been experiencing the consequences of it. This is clear. You look around the world and everyone is lost in confusion. Uh, there is no idea so stupid that some philosopher or religious leader hasn't said it and people have followed them. Everyone is confused. Everyone is lost. The strangest things are followed after. And even for us, even for us who believe in Christ, who do know why we are here, who do know the purpose of life, who do have hope and peace, we nevertheless struggle with doubt. Some of us to wonder if what the Bible says is true at all. And then probably all of us, though, when life is very rough, when we feel like we're losing everything, we begin to doubt God's goodness. Yes, he said that everything works for our good. It doesn't feel that way. I, I don't see how that's going to work out here. And so we, we continue to feel that doubt. Even the best of us, all we can say is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are all plagued by confusion, by doubt, not knowing what to do not being able to trust our own minds. And that doubt that the serpent sowed in Eve's mind, it led to the next destructive consequence in our world, and that's disobedience. The woman begins to wonder, yes, I, I've never considered that before. How do I know that God said that for my good? How do I know He's not trying to trick me? And of course, she can't have certainty that He definitely is evil, but she's also lost her certainty that he is definitely good. And so she's in this, this middle. She is agnostic. She doesn't know. And in that vulnerability then, she looks at the tree and she sees that the tree is good for food. She's enticed. She is drawn in. She sees that it's a delight to the eyes. And so thinking, I don't know if God is good. I don't know if he's wrong. But I don't know. I can't take this uncertainty. So what I'll do is I will eat of the tree. And then after I do that, then I'll know. Yeah, maybe God's not trying to uh, take advantage of me, but it's too much not knowing that maybe he is. So I'll seize that knowledge for myself. Now, I won't have God anymore decide for me what's good and evil. I'll eat of the tree, I'll become wise, and then from then on, I'll decide what's good and evil. I won't need to trust him anymore. I'll be totally autonomous, totally independent. And so she takes and she eats. And she gives to her husband and he eats as well. And the immediate consequence of that is verse 7. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Augustine says the consequence for disobedience is disobedience itself. Listen to this line from him. 
As soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed the divine command and forfeited divine grace, they were ashamed of their nakedness, for they felt the impulse of disobedience in the flesh as though it were a punishment corresponding to their own disobedience. So before Adam and Eve disobeyed, again, they had that peace that came from certainty. Certainty, in this case, related to their own behavior. They always knew what they were going to do. It was always the right thing. There was no going back and forth. What am I going to do today? I'm going to obey God. And is that good? Yes, it is going to be good. And they had total peace from that. And likewise, Eve could trust Adam and Adam Eve because they know that the other person is always going to do the right thing. And through that, they had this total blessedness and they were able to be with each other totally vulnerable because they knew the other person was always going to do the right thing and they themselves were always going to do the right thing. It was a blessed life. But when Adam and Eve tell God, thank you very much for the idea of telling us what to do, but we actually don't care about your rules anymore. We're going to be God from now on. They all of a sudden feel what it means to lose that law, to lose that rule, to lose the certainty that they are going to do the right, the right thing and the other is going to do the right thing. Because if, if they would break this one command from God, the only one they have, Who's to tell that they won't do some other nasty, terrible, perverse thing? There are no more guarantees. So Eve, all of a sudden she realizes, I do not control myself anymore. The disobedience that she brought to God, her body now brings to her. Her mind is no longer totally in control. And in realizing that she has lost perfect control of herself, she thinks, wait... And if Adam would show such disregard and hatred towards, or if Adam would show such hatred and disregard towards the Lord, how do I know he won't do something terrible to me? And they both feel the same thing, and they're all of a sudden very poignantly aware of their vulnerability. And so futilely they go and they put some garments together made of fig leaves. And of course, this. This plagues us to to this day. Of course, we're victims of other people and their lawlessness and their sinfulness and their perversity. But we're also victims of it ourselves. We make promises. We have the best intentions. We say, I'm not going to be like that person. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to do the right thing in my life. And we have those best of intentions and the years go by and we wonder, where did I go wrong? How could I have done this? kind of person have I become? And it's because we do not have control over ourselves. And telling God we do not want your rules, we lost all rules. We're all now drunk at the wheel, swerving left and right, with no guarantee that we won't do the worst things we can imagine. You could tell me, Spencer, you're going to be in this exact situation tomorrow, and you're going to face this temptation. How will you respond? And I cannot tell you with certainty how I will respond. I can tell you what I ought to do. I could probably tell you likelihood how how I will will respond. But I cannot tell you with certainty. Why? Because I do not have perfect control of myself. Like Paul, there is good that I want to do, but when I want to do it, the evil lies close at hand. And I find that there's a war inside me. I am not the master of myself. I have disobedience inside of me. And of course, this is a great harm 
the worst thing in having bad things happen to you is realizing that you're the one who had those bad things happen. It's your fault. The reason I don't have that relationship anymore is because I hurt them. The reason I have this thing is because I, I continue to choose it and I can't stop. God said, you want to see what it's like to be in charge of yourself, to decide what is right and wrong? Well, go ahead. And how has 6,000 years of history of us deciding what's right and wrong been? It's been a disaster. And so that doubt led to the disobedience. And implied there in the disobedience, that disobedience led to division. But we saw in verse 25, Adam and Eve perfectly united perfectly vulnerable and intimate with each other, but now that's gone. Now they can't trust the other person. Now they have to go and and hide themselves. And even worse than that alienation from each other, they run out into the forest and hide behind the trees. Of course, futile. How could you escape from God by hiding behind a tree? But when you're desperate, you'll do the dumbest things. And so they run away from God where before they enjoyed perfect fellowship with Him. They were made for Him to enjoy Him, to know Him, and they experienced that. And they experienced the heights of joy of that. But now that's gone. Now they run away from the thing they were created to enjoy. And then when God comes and, and finds him, finds Adam, and He says to him, what have you done? Adam just digs himself deeper. He pushes himself even further away from God. He says, yeah, I sinned, but it's your fault, God. And all of a sudden, it's Adam against the world. He doesn't have Eve. He doesn't have God. And he just keeps pushing God farther and farther away. And it's a lonely existence. And that's what we've experienced. Of course, there's division, fighting, strife all over the world. That is the standard course of human history. No, we're never going to be perfectly united in America. We're always going to hate other people. Nations are always going to war against each other. Why? Because we're all sinners. And no, we shouldn't trust each other. Why? Why should we? We've only proved over and over again that we should not be trusted. That we are painfully selfish. Even self-destructively selfish. And of course it happens in ourselves too. This division. No matter how hard we might want to hold on to a relationship and the intimacy, the fellowship we have, we say those words we can't take back. And the relationship's never the same. There's always some distance now. So we feel that alienation. We feel that loneliness. Isolation. The doubt led to the disobedience, to the division. And the fourth one, you guys know, it led to death. In chapter 2, verse 17, God said, the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And God is a man of His Word. That very moment that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, Bacteria began to corrode their teeth. Plaque began to build up in their arteries. Their cells began to reproduce uncontrollably, becoming tumors in their body. And then to exacerbate their impending death, God tells Adam in verse 19, or verse 17 to 19, that the earth is now going to wage a war against him. And his whole life, he's going to have to fight the earth with sweat dripping off his nose to try and get some food out from it. And though he might succeed for a number of years, eventually he's going to lose. And the earth will remain and he will collapse and the earth will swallow him up. And his once beautiful body will become dust. 
And no matter what our modern world might like to say, that death, it's just a part of life. It's what happens. We need to accept it. It never, ever, ever does, nor will it ever feel natural. It is the most unnatural thing, and God has made it that way. Every single time we realize that we are aging, that our body is decaying, every time we lose someone we love, we are reminded that we are not supposed to die. But the reason that we do is because we have sinned. We have opposed God. And the pain of death is God's constant testimony to us that He opposes us in our pride. That He hates our sin. And we see that. Every time you look in the mirror and you wish you were 20 again, Every time a man lies on a gurdy wishing he just had a, a few more days. Every time a woman weeps uncontrollably because of the death of her child. It is a testimony that God hates our sin. That He opposes us. That we have disobeyed and He is not okay with it. And that is God's testimony that cannot be ignored. And it is every place on earth. We all carry about burdens on our back that say, I have opposed God. And I am under the sentence of death. Faced with such misery in life, unbelievers prefer to tune out of reality. As Tom Waits once said, reality is for people who can't face drugs. Why should I think about my impending death and all the suffering around me when I could just not think about it? I can escape into some TV show. I can take drugs. I can, take out, I can drink alcohol. I can get so absorbed in my work that I'll never have a second or I'll have to think about how all I have and all I love is going to pass away. I can ignore reality. Everybody is beneath the ocean with sharks circling around. But the unbeliever, he has no hope and so he just closes his eyes tightly shut. Because what's the point in realizing that everything is lost? But us as believers, we are not hopeless. No, we are full of hope. And so though we also be in the water and sharks surround us, we can open, we can have our eyes wide open and stare at the bleak reality because we know no matter how dark it is, no matter how bad it seems, Christ is greater and we will win. We have a steel cage around us. The sharks cannot touch us. And so we can stare at them. We can examine it. And we can tell the unbelievers, it's no use in closing your eyes. You're going to die. Get in the, the cage. And that's the reason we have that hope. The very first example of that hope is here in verse 14 to 15. Interestingly enough, after the fall, Adam and Eve are probably in complete despair. God said they were going to die. And then they did that one thing. They're probably expecting they're going to be annihilated. But then comes this promise of hope. Yet, it is not maybe how we'd expect the first promise of hope to be made. It was not God preaching the gospel to them. Hey, I'm going to send my son and he's going to die in your place and we'll atone for your sins. He'll rise from the dead and everything will be okay. No, the first promise of hope is a bit more indirect. It's not even spoken directly to Adam and Eve. It's spoken to the serpent. And while it's spoken to the serpent, the audience is indeed all of humanity. And by the way, the, the focus of this passage does fall on verses 14 to 15. There's something here called a chiasm, which was a common thing Hebrew writers did, where it basically went A, B, C, B prime A. So it's like a, you know, a greater than sign or less than whatever way you're looking. 
and all the emphasis falls in the middle. And that's what we have right here. God talks to Adam, then he talks to Eve, or he questions Adam, he questions Eve, but he doesn't question the serpent. Instead, he curses the serpent, and then he doesn't curse, but gives the, the verdict on Eve and then the verdict on Adam. So the focus falls then here on what God says to the serpent. And the first ground of hope that we have from this sorrowful, miserable world is this, that the serpent will not win. He is cursed above all livestock, and he shall be humiliated all the days of his life. He will be made to eat the dust. He thought he was something in opposing God, and he thought he may have won in tempting Adam and Eve, but God assures him, no, you are cursed. You are destined to lose. No matter what you do in life, it is always going to lead to your, your loss, your failure. Everything that you mean for evil, I will make for good. You will fail. And you will be humiliated. You are not something. You are nothing. And you will eat the dust. So that's our first hope. That's the first good news. Okay, so this evil, this darkness, it is not going to win. God has not left us. He will still have victory. He is still in control. But nevertheless, just because the serpent is going to be destroyed does not necessarily mean that humanity is going to continue. Maybe they're going to be destroyed along with the serpent. But that's the further good news. Verse 15. The serpent may have thought that he had won. That he had captured Adam and Eve. That now, whether they liked it or not, they were going to be his reluctant servants, his reluctant slaves. And they were destined to get locked in a futile struggle with God, eventually resulting in their damnation. But that's the good news that God gives in verse 15. No, humanity is not going to be your servant now, Satan. Rather, I will put enmity between you and the woman. She will hate you. And she will fight with you always. She will not be your, uh, your victim. She will become your opponent. And not just she, but her offspring will oppose your offspring. And by offspring, it's not other snakes. It's everyone who does evil. And in that, we see another ground of hope. Not only is Eve going to fight the serpent, not only does she have that freedom to fight back, but guess what? Humanity is going to continue. Eve is going to have offspring. She's not going to die in 30 seconds. She's going to live. And she's going to have children. And she's going to fulfill that mandate that God gave her to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And by fulfilling that command, she will bless the world. She will fight back against Satan. That's wonderful news. Humanity will continue. And then finally, the culmination of all the hope. It is that one of the offspring, indeed, well, the offspring would, verse 20, Yes, it is specifically Christ who crushed the serpent, who crushed evil. But remember, He did it on our behalf. The incarnation happened because it had to be humanity who defeated the devil. Yes, it was the divine man, but nevertheless, He, he conquered on our behalf. And we were united to Him in His triumph. Just as we fell with Adam, so we triumph with Christ. And so because of that, Paul can say here, in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You won't just be a passive observer over the defeat of evil and death. You yourself will triumph over it in Christ. 
You will be riding the horse behind Him as He comes back to earth to make everything right. And finally, as we struggle with apathy towards Christ, we realize we're not loving Him as we ought to. A thing to do is to always remind ourselves of what we deserve, of our misery. G.K. Chesterton says, the only way to be grateful for even a weed is to feel yourself unworthy of even a weed. We become apathetic towards Christ when we forget how terrible this place is. When we think that everything is just fine, that we're actually pretty good people, that life is, is pretty nice. That's when we forget our Lord. But for those of us who suffer, for those of us who remember our suffering, we feel Christ all the more. We value Him all the more. And I'd like to, to end with, with two passages. Well, one from the Bible, one from Paul, and the other from Martin Luther. But if you'd turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. There are many, many allusions in the Bible to Genesis 3.15. This is not one of them. <laughs> but it is a beautiful passage about our triumph over evil. Start in verse 9. 2 Timothy 4.9 Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Take a kiss I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now that famous verse from a mighty fortress is our God. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let me pray. Lord, there, there's no words that could express our need for you. You are our creator, our sustainer, the one we are made for, and the one who saved us. Lord, regardless of if we have known that before, unbeliever or believer alike, Lord, please help us all come to see just how desperately we need you. And then even more than recognizing our misery, our desperation, that we would see the grace that you give. How all of complete solace is found in you. Please help us give our total love to you. Please help us live with you in your resurrection. Overcoming our doubt, our disobedience, our strife and fighting with one another, Lord. Let us do all that through hope in the gospel that you have atoned for our sins, loosing us from the control of Satan, and you have triumphed over death. That is wonderful news, Lord. Please help us live lives that are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.